Hi there, and welcome to Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories with Amy Syed. This episode is brought to you by the Quantum Genius Program. Today, we're going to talk to someone who has a harrowing story of survivorship and thriving there afterwards. We do want to start by sharing a content warning. Information shared on our podcast can be graphic in nature, and we recommend that you review the details of our podcast before listening. We appreciate you tuning in, and we hope that the story shared with you today is inspirational and helps you get through tough times that you may be facing. Welcome again to Calm After the Storm. This week, I'm speaking to Farah Nasser. Farah is an award-winning journalist, best known for her position as an evening anchor on Global News. Rooted in political news, Farah has reported on elections of every level, as well as major events such as the Toronto van attack, the G20 summit in 2010, and the Toronto 18 terror trials. Farah is known for giving a voice to those who have experienced racism in Canada, specifically in the first time I was called and Living in Color campaigns, and her TEDx talk, The Power of Intellectual Humility. Farah, let's start by talking a little bit about your childhood. Where were you born? What did your childhood look like? I was raised in Mississauga, and my brother and I, uh, we just essentially, uh, it was all about education in our house. Like, it was all about everything had a lesson. Like, everything was, you know outings were like trips to the library, family vacations were trips to historical landmarks. So essentially it was an immigrant childhood in many ways, but it was also, my parents thought a lot outside the box, right? So they weren't, they weren't Mm -hmm. really like, okay, well, how come you didn't get an A when you had a, a B? It was like, okay, well, let's talk about this. Are you happy with this mark? Like they were very much um, I don't think they realized, but I think they were real leaders in parenting in that, in that aspect. So I was very, very lucky. I had a really good basis. We didn't have a lot of money, but we did have, um, but my parents, they, they second mortgaged the house to send my brother and I to private school to make sure we got the best education. And now in hindsight, my brother and I are both journalists. We look back at this. My parents always taught us like, everybody has a story. Everybody, everybody is a wealth of resource. Like, don't be the smartest person in the room. Be the most curious, ask questions, learn from everyone you meet. Everyone has something that you can, that you can learn. That's beautiful. That That's just amazing. I want to touch a little bit about um, how you felt growing up because you've written very uh, openly about how you used to put on a Valley Girl accent, how you traded your tandoori chicken wrap for your friends like ketchup sandwich right. on Wonder Bread, that sort of thing. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because it sounds like your parents were very involved. And I know from the information I've read about your dad specifically around the time you became anchor on Global News, I can relate to it, you know, having the South Asian background and having parents parents like that too. But talk to me a little bit about how it is when you're growing up in a house where your parents are really positively parenting you, but you're going out there and you're still seeing like what's happening in society as a South Asian child. Such a, such a great question. Actually, I've never really talked about this before, but you're right. There, there is really this, uh, this dichotomy because you have this like basis of love and everything, but then you go outside and you don't really always feel like you belong. Like I went to um, you know, the private school I went to, even the public school I went to before that, like it was very, I was one of very few South Asians. I kind of hid my culture because I wanted to be cool. And, you know, this was like the 90210 kind of time in, you know, and just 
you want it to be kind of as westernized as possible, like kind of hid that part mm-hmm. of myself in a way. Um, and then I had like a bunch of friends at our Jamaat Khan at our mosque. Um, but you, I really kind of compartmentalized those two things, you know, school was school and school was like me, you know, like the ver- version of me. And then it was like this whole other world, right. Where you're really yourself. So I think that was difficult. I also didn't, yeah, I didn't realize how much I appreciated my culture until I got older. Like I, I, I love my, I love where I'm from. I love where my family's from, but I don't know if I necessarily felt that way growing up because I didn't have people outside who I felt like I could connect with. I remember w- once when I was really little, I met, um, this is maybe grade one or something or kindergarten or something. I met a girl who was also a Muslim and it was the first time I had met another Muslim child. And I was like, you say dua? And she's like, yeah, I say duas. And and she like recited a bit of the Quran. I'm like, how do you know Bismillahirrahmanirrahim? And I'm like, I know it too. (laughs) And we were just, it was just like this aha moment. Like there's someone else in this entire world that's like me. Like you go to the school, but you also pray and go to mosque and like, you know, you guys eat biryani. We eat biryani. Are you kidding me? You know what a samosa is? Like, it was just this like exciting moment in my life, you know, and I always will remember oh, it. Oh, I know. I know. I had I had exactly the same moment when we moved to Richmond Hill. Uh, I was in grade four and I met this girl. Her name was Nikki and uh, only other South Asian girl in the school. Like people can't tell what I am. So when when I go into situations, I'm almost like I've been this observer of racism, right? Even though they don't aim it at me, I see it and I felt it growing up. But so she found out that, you know, I had South Asian background and she came looking for me uh, in school and we had the same type of interaction. I was like, <laughs> wow, you speak Hindi? I understand what you're saying in Hindi. Like, that's amazing, right? But in your home, you ha- you have loving parents and they're, they're teaching you these values, but you're going out there and it's not as accepted. Can you talk to me a little bit about the first time you were called Paki? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that was um, at that same school I went to. It was a French immersion school. And I remember... Um, I remember it was just such a visceral feeling like it was I must have been like five, maybe. And it was going on the monkey bars. And this kid wanted to be on the monkey bars and told me to get off. And he said, you know, you packy. And I remember my whole body was like, I don't want to be a packy, you know, like, I don't want to I, I just that word really was hard to kind of. And then it, it was a self realization moment in a way that was like, okay, well, hold on. Like, this is, this is what I am and I don't want to be this thing. Right. So I I think that was a really difficult thing, but more interesting thing is speaking about it 30 some odd years later, you know, and telling my, I I told my boss about it. And that's how the first time I was called series started. And he was like, how do you remember that? I'm like, Oh buddy, like you, everybody remembers what they were called because it's such a visceral feeling because you can't change that about yourself and you know that, and it's just a hard thing like you, I'm sure essentially you are one, right? Like if you think about it, you are, you identify like my background is Pakistani. Like my dad's born in India, but he came over during the partition. And so, you know, you are one, right? But then you think what's wrong with that? And like, why, why is, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, Actually, oddly enough, my twins who are now 12 grew up in the French system, not French immersion, but full French. And just, uh, I think it was last year, one of their friends used the word not in a derogatory way. She just used it like you're a packy, right? right? Like that's what you are. And they came home and they go, it's really strange because they're like, I was so mad. And I told her, you can't use that word. It's like using the N word for black people. It's not nice. And she really didn't know. 
That's what my daughter was telling me. And I found that to be so interesting, right? It's like almost like the way that you and I reacted was very visceral and it was very part of who we are Mm -hmm. and it was an attack almost on us. But for them, it was kind of like, well, they really didn't know. So I had to educate them on it, right? Which is obviously another conversation. We really shouldn't be having to educate people about, you know, not using that word. But I find that to be so interesting. So as you grew up, I mean, you grew up in a very loving house. You grew up very close to your Ismaili community. And um, I know that you always had, you know, a very supportive family and friends around you. Let's talk a little bit about when you got married and when you guys decided to have kids. Yeah, it wasn't even a question. I mean, I think I wanted to be in my, <laughs> I've told my husband, this, like, I wanted to be a mom more than I wanted to be a, uh, be a wife or an anchor. Like mom was like the top thing for me, but it's hard. Like it's not, it's, it's crazy how not intuitive it is. You know what I mean? Like how it's like, it's actually work to learn to be a mom. It's not, even if you want it, even if you're great with kids and you're animated and you know how to, you know, it's still, it is the hardest job in the entire world. But anyway, we, we wanted to have kids. Um, I had a job offer around that time in the States, uh, which would have been a lot more money, would have, would have totally changed my career. My husband's business is based out of Silicon Valley. He's based out of uh, California. His whole team's there. So he, for him, it was like the best thing that could have happened for me. You know, um, I would have made a lot more money and had a, a different career, but um, I just wanted my kids to be around the grandparents. I just couldn't imagine not being, I mean, I was raised by my grandparents too, in in a sense. So I just could not imagine having that and being that far away. And and so we stayed put and yeah, and had kids. And now it's like, I'm very grateful. I have exactly the life that I I wanted. So when you, when you got pregnant, were you guys uh, like, and you found out you had twins, (laughs) that you were pregnant with twins. Walk me through that experience. Was it a surprise? Did you know, like, yeah, no, it was a shock. It was a complete shock. I remember that moment was like, Oh my God. Like how I, I'm sure you went through it too, where it was like, I don't even know one, I don't even know one baby. How am I going to handle two? And it was, it was a real difficult, uh, kind of mental thing that, uh, you know, and we found out it was two boys and that also was like, I've never, I don't, I don't know many about boys. And it was like a, yeah, a real adjustment to get that in our minds. But then we were, we were super excited about it. We thought we're going to get all this done in one shot. We're going to have our two kids in one. Yeah, shot. for sure. Yeah. Instant family. Right. So, so how was your pregnancy? Like, did you have any complications during the pregnancy? How did you feel? No, it was great. It was amazing. I was working on a morning show at the time and it was, I mean, I had nausea and, and morning sickness, which was funny at like three in the morning on Queen street like, you know, vomiting on the street. And then somebody who like had come from a bar vomiting on the street beside me and, you know, him looking at me like, Oh, a tough night. I'm like, yeah, actually I'm just going to work. And, uh, yeah, so no, not the same thing, but, um, it was, uh, yeah, beyond that and and commercial breaks, which were like running to the washroom, I had really bad nausea, but it was fine. It was totally fine. And then, and then, you know what happened? I mean, I lost, um, I lost one of the twins. Did you know before you were going to deliver that you had lost him? Yeah. So what had happened was uh, my husband was traveling and it was the first week of January. And after New Year's, I felt like I just felt like I wasn't feeling one baby active. Like I, I, you get really aware of your body when you're pregnant, as you know, and you know where your twins are, you know, which side they're on and kind of approximately. And, and there was one area where I felt like I wasn't having any kicking and I wasn't having any, any activity. And, and my girlfriends all stayed over five of them and we had a sleepover uh, baby shower kind of thing 
I remember saying to them, I'm like, guys, it just doesn't feel right. Like something doesn't feel right. And they were like, you're and my cousin is a doctor who's was there. And she's like, far, you're fine. You're always paranoid. You're totally fine. Don't worry about it. I said, okay, whatever. And she said, you know, when Reza comes home from, you know, just you go to the doctor and see just for your own peace of mind. I said, fine, whatever. And I think Saturday we went to the hospital just to get a checkup uh, at Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. And I remember everything was taking really long. They just couldn't find the heartbeat, couldn't find the heartbeat. And I just thought, okay, well, this, they're, they're looking. It's not a big deal. My husband's like, it's fine. You've been here so many times because you've been worried. Like, this is nothing. And then, you know, the moment that I'll never forget in my entire life was when the woman looked at me and held my hand, the nurse, and said, um, there is no heartbeat uh, in, we're not detecting a heartbeat in twin B. That is when I learned and that was the moment. And I just, I remember not being able to breathe. Like it was like this. And I didn't, I didn't even know what comes next. Like one is alive, one has passed away. What happened? Um, I was beside myself, as you can imagine. My husband was crying, which he, I'd never seen him cry before at that point in, in our whole relationship. And it was just, we were holding each other and it was just this really difficult, difficult thing to process. And then I said, well, can you take him, can you take them out? Like take them out now. But they said, no, you're 24 weeks. Like it's dangerous. Like you can't take both babies out. So I said, so what am I supposed to do? And they said, no, you have to carry them both um, until you give birth. So that was, that was really difficult. That was the lowest point of my life. It's important to know that in 2019, globally, an estimated 1.9 million babies were stillborn at 28 weeks of pregnancy or later, with a global stillbirth rate of 13.9 stillbirths per 1,000 total births. It happens. It's everywhere. And it is also very much not talked about because in some cultures, it is stigmatized. It is generally seen as a woman's burden because it is the woman who experiences knowing the child and then losing the child. Some cultures have also gone so far as to blame a woman for the loss. What is also not talked about enough is the emotional impact it has on the fathers and the pain that is associated with the loss of hope of a future child. It is seen and felt in IVF, It is seen and felt in so many fertility challenges. The want for a child and losing hope in having it can be severely damaging to people's psyches, and therefore, a lot of people just don't talk about it. It's understandable, and it's something that I think it does happen quite often than we know in twin pregnancies, because twin pregnancies are high risk. It's always in the back of your mind as a mom in a twin or a multiple pregnancy, because I know for me, they were doing ultrasounds like almost weekly just to make sure that yeah. the second like twin A was growing because twin A was would grow and then she'd stop growing. Were the boys identical twins or were they fraternal? They were fraternal. Yeah, they were fraternal. So they were, but, but I didn't have any, like there was nothing, like everything was just going the exact way beyond the morning sickness. Like we, I was, I don't think I was even getting those ultrasounds weekly. I was getting them. Like, it was just like a picture perfect pregnancy until that point. And then, well, we, we had found out what had happened after he was born. It was the umbilical cord, um, which was wrapped around my son, uh, twice. And that's pretty much what happened. So it was one of those kind of fluke things. And, you know, when the umbilical 
cord is wrapped, it doesn't necessarily mean the child, you know, will pass. But in this case, I guess it was a certain way. And, and that's how they, cause it, that was the other thing for, you know, however many weeks, six, eight weeks, those weeks, I was like, what did I do? You know, the whole time, what did I do? How did one survive one? Not what did I do? Was I, was I running around? Was it this morning show that I was on? Was I, uh, I remember, you know, we, we did a gift exchange with my girlfriends for Christmas that we're sleeping over. And I remember running around the city, getting certain things from certain stores to put together. And I was like, I was doing too much running around. I was, what was I doing? I was walking to work every day. Like this was nuts, you know? And so that part was really difficult, but then found out what had happened. And that at least gave me a bit of closure in that little part of the story. But again, it was yeah very difficult to to get closure on the rest of it. And so when you went, did, did you go into labor or did they deliver them by, by a C-section? I'm no, assuming it was C-section. No, I went into labor. I mean, they said keep twin A as long as you can in there because he needs to grow, right? And so they put me on bed rest and they, they I, I was in the hospital like for weeks. And then finally I was like, I can't stay here anymore. Like I'm going to go crazy. So they said, okay, fine, go home and be on bed rest at home. And that was at 32 weeks. And I came home and that same night we, we slept, I slept in my bed for the first time. My water broke and um, we rushed in and we knew at that point, um, you know, to me, I, it was very, I was very confused by the whole thing. Cause I'm like, what, how is it going to work when they both come out? What is it going to look like? How, how am I going to have a yeah. funeral? Like, how is this all supposed to unfold? And that was adding to the anxiety. Yeah. And then we, we didn't even deliver at the hospital that we were supposed to because there was not enough beds. And then I went into, after I gave birth, I went into a really severe postpartum hemorrhage. So I ended up in the ICU. So, um, that was also really, really difficult. My son was in the NICU because he was born at 32 weeks. My other son had passed away and I was in the ICU fighting for my life. So my husband had a, had a really, really difficult uh, couple weeks there. Yeah. And wh- what did you name twin A? So Kian is my son and Hussein mm-hmm. is my son who has passed away. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we look at, you know, the pictures that Christy Teigen, for example, shared in the media, uh, that uh, I'm going to reference that because I think that's probably the first time I've seen widespread discussion about the visceral feelings, the, uh, the grief in the moment, you know, talk to me a little bit about the importance of talking about this type of a subject, especially for other women. This happens every day around the world and people experience it regularly. And even for women who haven't experienced it, it's so, it's part of our, our child birthing stories, you know? So talk to me a little bit about the importance of this. So I think for me, the best, because it, it's really a, a real mind trip to carry life and death in your body. And I think also just people didn't really understand. Like I got a lot of people who were saying, you know, you, uh, well, at least you have one. And it's like, well, there were two separate people. Like, it's not like, at least I have and one. And you knew them. Yeah. And, and, you, right? you, knew and them. you knew them. Yeah. And it's like, you're grieving. It's such a weird thing to say for people, but in a way, um, you know, I, I went to group therapy and it was really the only thing that helped. I mean, I was on drugs, on meds. I was on heavy meds. Um, cause I was in, in severe postpartum after I almost lost my life. And then dealt with this grief. And so I was like in a really bad place. So, so I was medicated heavily. I was going to intensive therapy, but the one thing that I think helped more than anything was this idea of group therapy was hearing from other women who had gone through either the exact thing I had gone through or something similar, even when they, even giving birth to it once a stillborn, you know, I heard a story of a one woman who, um, you know, saved all her money, spent it on IVF, uh, was 43 and had one chance of having a baby 
and she had a stillbirth, you know, and then another story of a woman who begging for a C-section, they didn't want to give her a C-section. And then because of the uh, hospital malpractice, she alleges like the baby got lost, you know, like, so there was other stories and I'm like, I'm not alone. Everybody has their thing. Everybody has their story. And it just, it was like, okay. And, and, you know, the way they went through it and explained to me how the, the process and how they were processing it. I was like, I get it. I feel that same way. And I'm angry, you know? And yeah, I think that was really helpful. And I think having other people like Chrissy Teigen talk about how, you know, and I know she's getting criticized now because she's out there and doing her thing, but everybody processes different differently, right? Like they do everything differently. Yeah. Absolutely. And actually she was criticized right off the bat, right? Because people were like, why are you talking about it? But that's also, for me, I think uh, being an observer of this was that when things are so real, you know, when we start talking about and having conversations about things, even like talking about something simple like a period, because it's real and it happens to us, but it's also part of who we are, um, it often causes an uprising on on other parts of society, you know, and this is one of those things where I think for us as women, it was heartbreaking. And I think that uh, I'm really proud of you for talking about it on the news so openly. And by talking about it, that's the only way we're going to be able to provide that feeling that you're talking about in group therapy, right? Talk to me a little bit about Kian. Like, how was he after he was born? I'm sure he knew that he was missing his twin. I decided early on and, you know, my husband and I debated this, but I, I was really adamant on it, which is I didn't want him to ever learn it as a surprise. Like I wanted him to just have it as part of him. Like Hussein is part of our family, you know, and Kian still, like he had to fill out an all about me section at school. And he said he has like, there's, you know, three, three kids in his family. Like he believes that, you know, Hussein is still here watching us. Right. We talk about it all the time. So beautiful. Yeah. So he's like, you know, I have a brother, but he died and he know, you know, he knows how to explain it. He's watching us. And my, my younger one is having a bit of a harder time with it right now. She's uh, five. Mm. She just turned five. And she's like, always like, you know, asking, she's like, does Hussein have legs? You know, does he, yeah. Like, (laughs) where is he? Is he real? Was he ever real? And the other day, you know, we were going to sleep and she's like, I think he's actually alive. Like she just can't kind of compute it in her head. And um, I, it, it also really upsets her that, you know, she's like, you knew him and Kia knew him and Papa knew him, but I never met him. And, you know, so she's having a, a bit of a harder time. Um, Kian, I think he sees it as like, I have a brother. Like I had, I had a brother, he was with me and, you know, and, and he really feels close to him in a lot of ways because I have twins too, I believe that they are spiritually linked. Um, because I mean, how many people can say that they're in a womb, like pre pre life together, right? So they'll always be spiritually linked. And I'm sure as he grows, and he matures, he's going to understand that spiritual side of it, which is so beautiful. So talk to me a little bit about how life looks like now for you. Let's talk a little bit about even getting on global and how all of this has looked like for you. Yeah, it's it's a little crazy. I mean, I'm sure for you too, like for any working mom, it's uh it's this constant juggle, constant balancing act, constant push and pull where you feel like you're not doing the best at anything you're doing, right? So Yeah. Um, you know, and that's something we also don't talk about enough, right? Like it's it's you know of course even when we um, you know, when you're talking about even the, the group therapy aspect of it, like I, I had an employer who at the time didn't really understand, you know, and was like, Well, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, you, you get over it. You're sad, but you get over it kind of feeling, you know, like didn't really yeah, fully comprehend yeah. what it was like to 
almost die, lose a child, like, you know, and she was a mother, but she didn't see it like that, right? She's like, okay, move on, let's go. You got to go back to work. Like, you know, and so I think that in a lot of ways, we need to really talk about things, like even the struggle that we go through as moms, like this push and pull. And I know our mothers went through it before us. And I know many of them, like my mom, not even having help, like not even having any, not having anybody, you know, to help her. Um, I think, you know, it was probably more challenging in a lot of ways, but we have our own struggles, you know, with screens and all kinds of stuff, right? And and bullying now and all this kind of stuff. So I think we have to talk about that more because it's it's not easy. Life is not easy. People look at me and they think, oh, how are you doing it all? You have it all together. Well, I don't actually, you know, it's a mm-hmm. mess. Everything is a mess. Like my mind none is a mess. Do. No, none of us do. I can <laughs> yeah. barely sleep at night. Like it's just, it is a constant struggle and that's okay. But let's not pretend that everything is rosy all the time, right? Because it's not. Talking about loss helps us heal by keeping the memory of that person's existence alive. In my grief work with clients and in experiencing grief myself, it helps to be able to remember the person lost in our daily lives to celebrate what they were and the impact they had on our lives. By talking about them, remembering them and embracing them, they live in our hearts for always. I personally speak about my father almost daily with my children and partner. I lost him over 21 years ago, but he is so alive in our lives that my children who never knew him and never met him, remember him and his contributions to my life, which is his legacy. What are you seeing out there in terms of how, how are, how are mothers coping with these children? right now. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's stress. It's really difficult. And I think the biggest, biggest problem we have right now and, you know, schools go Mm -hmm. back. First of all, I think there's a real divide with parents right now. I think there's the parents who are keeping their kids at home and keeping the kids at school. And I think it can be contentious at times, right? How people feel. And I see that on people I follow on social media, but also friends also in WhatsApp chats, you know, um, you have like this chat with all the moms you're friends with and some of them are sending their kids and some of them. And you're like, do I say this? Is this going to hurt somebody's feelings? You know? So, so that's part of it. Um, I think that's, a big thing. But I think the other large thing is I still don't think employers fully understand. And there's a potential we could see schools go back, not in the immediate future. I mean, the at least here in Ontario, the province is saying that they're keeping schools on. In New York, they've closed them, but it could happen. And I think I still don't think employers fully understand what it's like to homeschool a child and work at the same time. I have a nanny and it, it it is so hard. She's not an educator, neither am I. Like it is such a challenge and it is it is so difficult and you can't do everything. And, you know, there was an article that came out recently about like employee time theft, right? Like people working from home and and it's such such a fallacy because it doesn't exist. Like we are, it's we're barely, especially as moms, we're barely barely making it, you know, with what the responsibilities plus the mothering, plus the house stuff, plus all that stuff, right? And and then imagine people it's, in, it's mental load. Totally. It's mental load. You're thinking all the time. You wake up and you're thinking about how you're gonna get them on the computer for school, what they're gonna do today. Do I have to talk to their teacher? What am I doing for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Do I have enough groceries? It's crazy because I've actually written down Did I print all the stuff? Yes, yes. I have written down my thoughts in one day. I think I, I ended up with like 10 pages of thoughts. And that is the mental load that is our reality right now. Yeah. And, and, and imagine people that don't have 
the privilege that you and I have. Like, you've got to think about those people too. Like, how how is it possible? And then people who have to go to work, who can't work from home like us, because obviously that's an enormous privilege. And I just don't think that our society, even through the first wave and even now, has really fully wrapped their heads around that aspect of it, right? There has to be some more measures from the government, because I don't think corporations are going to take those measures necessarily, right? That, that, that help parents. Well, I mean, I think there needs to be some kind of a protectionism, right? Just like we have the Human Rights Act, because of the evolution of what's happened the last few months, Mm -hmm. we probably need some kind of new legislation to protect people. The second thing I'm going to say about the time theft is that I'd like to know who's doing, who's committing that time theft, because (laughs) all we're doing is working, right? And I actually realized since I started working from home, and that was pre-COVID, because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I work in the world of tech, everything is remote. And we've really, I think the tech space has really um, taken it upon themselves to be able to work remotely um, a few years in advance of what's happening this year. But I work longer hours. I work seven days a week sometimes. Like there's no shortage of the work that I can do working from home. And yes, you have flexibility in some ways because yes, I can teach my children while I'm dealing with, you know, stuff at work, but it also elongates my day. So instead of me, you know, punching out at five o'clock and having dinner with my kids and then being able to spend time with my partner afterwards, I am essentially sometimes logging back in after they're in bed at 8, 8.30 and then continuing my work day. So there's arguments that can be made on both sides, but I am with you. I think that there needs to be some kind of a reform. As we wrap up the podcast episode, we always ask if there's anybody you'd like to dedicate this podcast episode to, um, who would that be? I think it'd be my mom. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, my dad has definitely done so much for our learning and our education, but my mom has really taught me to speak out and not be afraid, you know, not be afraid to be vulnerable. And I think that is a real Thing that I'm, I'm, I'm appreciating now as I get older, like, you know, there's this, mm-hmm. even w- even in our community in many ways, you know, there's this, like you, you put on kind of this armor, this, this, this shining armor that you're like, look at me, look what I've done. Look at my family, look at my kids, you know, dress everybody yeah. properly and all this kind of stuff. But inside yeah. there's all this, there's like all this stuff happening. And I think growing up, she was so vulnerable in her mental illness and so many things and so honest Um, and it's made me realize that life is just easier that way and better that way when you don't have to put a front on. And and I think that's, that's why I'm able to talk about all these things. So I want to dedicate it to her. Thank you. And thank you for your authenticity, uh, both in person, online. There's so many people watching you. And I'm sure that's something that you carry on your shoulders every day. But it's inspirational for my future generation in my house and for us, even as women of your generation, to see this and to believe that, you know, we have so many South Asian women now in the media. It's just amazing. You bring with yourself a different perspective. And that perspective is so needed for us to move forward, you know, given what's been going on on the world stage and especially uh, with our neighbors in the U.S. Oh, Amy, thank you so much. Thanks for your kind words and your extremely thoughtful interview. Uh, Yeah, like you asked some questions that I've done many of these and, and I haven't been asked. So thank you. Thank you for that and for this beautiful conversation. 
I want listeners to know how appreciative I am of Farah's openness to talk on the podcast with me and share so candidly about her pain in losing Hussein. I admire her ability to break barriers and host the evening news, to report on tough things and be an advocate for South Asian women like myself. She continues to be a champion of women of color and moms everywhere. Her ability to share so eloquently has been my honor, and I hope the listeners benefit from this episode. There are some resources here in Ontario through the Provincial Council of Maternal Health and are accessible on my website at www.amysayed.ca. We can ensure an open dialogue through actually speaking about it. Having tough conversations, grieving with each other, and recognizing that this type of loss is the same as a person who was alive and present in the world. Thank you for listening to Calm After the Storm. The podcast is dedicated to telling stories about survivorship, healing, and thriving after trauma. If you like this episode, support Calm After the Storm, Survivorship and Other Stories by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Calm After the Storm is created by me, Amy Syed, and produced by Quill Incorporated. A special thanks to our guest today, Farah Nasser. Be sure to check out her social channels at Farah Nasser.